Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The young man seems to think highly of you, boss. He invoked your name with a measure of respect. Yeah, it was about a few weeks ago I was in a room with him being called everything but a child of God. Mr. Colvin, sir. Fuck you. Yo, at least I said mister. That was an exchange from The Wire. In my opinion, one of the best television dramas ever made. The deepest voice was that of Howard Bunny Colvin a former Baltimore police commander turned teacher in a special class for middle school students known for their disruptive behavior. The voice after his was that of Naaman Bryce, one of those students. Over the course of Naaman's trajectory, we see him start out aspiring to follow his father into a life of crime and a drug organization, but it's clear to all around Naaman that he's not cut out for that. In the end, we see Naaman beginning to realize his academic promise, epitomized by an impressive high school debate performance. In a television series known for its bleakness, this is one rare, redemptive story arc. And one thing that's central to Naaman's transformation is Colvin's mentorship. Indeed, Colvin had a history of mentorship, having been a mentor to the man whose voice we heard first in that exchange, Carver, one of his former officers who still calls him boss. Outside of fictionalized portrayals, youth mentorship often happens in the real world, with Big Brother's Big Sisters constituting one of the most famous examples. But what is the impact of mentorship? When is it most effective? On a different note, what's the role of gender and race in mentoring? What does it take to be a good mentor? And what kinds of policies can support effective mentorship? These are the kinds of questions I recently discussed with Gene Rhodes. Rhodes is the Frank L. Boyden Professor of Psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She studies intergenerational relationships, especially formal and informal mentorship, and their effects on the development of youth, particularly marginalized youth. She holds a PhD in clinical and community psychology from DePaul University, and I'm fortunate to have had a chance recently to talk with her. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Pass the Torch. I grew up in the town of Allendale, New Jersey, which is a small town in northern New Jersey. Okay. And when you think back to your formative years in uh, Allendale and beyond, uh, do you see foundations back then for your current interest in youth mentoring? So, for example, were you ever a youth mentor or were you a protege to a mentor? What Do you see elements there that you look back and you think, oh, yeah, that, that, that's where the roots uh, lay for my current interest? 
Yes, absolutely. It was really, I was a protege. So um, I would say that I've had several really influential mentoring relationships in my life. And I think that's what led me to both study it and also to become a psychologist. Uh Um, And I'll, I'll talk about those. The first was when I was in high school and my parents' marriage was coming to an end and I was struggling in school and not really having any direction. And I had this guidance counselor named Miss Blanchard who um, one day she called me out of class and she said, uh, and I didn't know why, I thought maybe I'd messed up on something. And she said, I heard you got a moped. Do you mind if I take it for a ride? And she was always doing things like that to kind of just reduce my anxiety and help me. And I even think she helped me get into college because she kind of knew long before I did that I had gotten into UVM. And um, so really, I think that prepped me for the idea that adults other than my parents could be really important in my life. And then I I get to college at University of Vermont, and I take an introductory psychology course, like Psych 101. And it is taught by this pioneer in the field of community psychology. His name is George Albee. And he had been the president of the American Psychological Association. He had founded the field of community psychology with some of his seminal work. And he's teaching this lowly intro course. And it really, when I look back, it was so that he could kind of get people right at the start because his class was unlike any class being taught in, I think, the United States. Like he taught the DSM, you know, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual through the lens of social inequality and its intractical um, links with insurance companies. He taught about sexism and homophobia and racism as the cause of so much psychopathology. He led a uh, summer institute on the prevention of psychopathology where he took on, you know, all the topics of, you know, social injustice. And that really just blew me away. And it primed me like for a path that I never got off. When I entered college, I didn't even know there were, could be doctors that weren't medical doctors. And within three years, I, I was like, I have to become a PhD clinical psychologist. So he was my major mentor and remain that way until his death. Well, one of the things that you remind me of when you talk about the central role of inequality in his pedagogy is a couple of years ago, I went to um, the biannual uh, uh, or biennial meeting of the, the SCRA. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I, I forget what it stands for, but it's basically the Central Society or, for Research on Adolescence. Yeah. Oh, well, no, this was community oh, site. Oh, community this, site. oh, SCRA. Yeah. Society for Community Research and Action. Yeah. And, yeah. Division 27. Got it. And so I, I'm not a community psychologist. I'm a, I'm a social psychologist. Yeah. And so this was really, I knew that community psychology existed as a field or subfield, but I hadn't really engaged with it until I went to this conference because uh, we were laying a foundation as a department here at where, the college where I teach for a search for someone who would be e- either a clinical counseling or community psychologist. And I went recruiting basically. Yeah. And whereas within social psychology, where typically we like to think of ourselves as scientists, we, we tend to keep normative questions somewhat at arm's length. Uh, and we say that that informs the questions that we ask, but we, we try not to in our, in our empirical reports, get into those questions of what should and shouldn't be done. But at this community site conference, normative questions and questions about uh, not just the impact of equality, but how we should work uh, to 
to resolve it, we're, we're at the front uh, and center. And do you identify as both a clinical and a community psychologist, by the way? Or, or yeah, I, you know, there's a few programs in the country that are called community clinical psychology programs. And you yep. get, you know, and it, it's, it kind of feels like a strange combination because clinical is so focused on the individual and community on the context, but it's really that interplay that yep. we look at. And um, yeah, so absolutely. Um, that's where I was indoctrinated into the world of community psychology as like a 19 year old. And um, once you kind of see the world through that lens, it's really impossible to see it any other way because you see how much structural inequality um, and, and disadvantage affect developmental outcomes. And, you know, you have to work toward mitigating those. You can't just strengthen the individual. You have to also be at play in the systems that are creating the psychopathology. Much of the work that you have done has focused on youth mentoring. And so I I noticed that along with Elizabeth Raposa and others, you published a meta-analysis in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence in 2019, so a very recent paper. And for those listeners who don't know what meta-analyses are, as the meta prefix implies, it's uh it's an it's a, it's an analysis of analyses. So what you did was you took um, numerous previous studies of the impact of youth mentoring, and you and your colleagues looked across those studies and quantitatively summarized common themes, but also looked for variation and tried to make sense of what could account for that variation and in, in how big an Im- of an impact was observed in a particular study of youth mentoring. And as I tell my undergraduates, meta-analyses can often, when you're just starting to learn about literature, provide uh, an efficient means by which to get a sort of bird's eye view of what's been happening in that literature. And so for my listeners who are curious about the impact of youth mentoring, I wonder, first, when you look for commonalities across those studies, how would you characterize the general finding or general take-home point about the efficacy of uh, youth mentoring programs based on your meta-analysis? Yeah, so this meta-analysis was really trying to take stock of the entire field of youth mentoring. And in this case, we had a pretty rigid um, definition for what we considered a youth mentoring relationship. It had to be intergenerational, not you know just a peer relationship. It had to be one-on-one, you know, not group. And um, we really looked at everything we could find. And it was studies that had been published um, all the way back to 1975 we found 70 mentoring outcome studies representing over 25,000 kids um, that we looked at. And I expected with our, you know, really rigorous um, inclusion criteria that we'd find a stronger effect than has been found in previous meta-analyses. And actually it was the almost identical effect size of earlier meta-analyses. Um, so despite putting a lot of money and research and development into trying to improve youth mentoring, the first thing that stood out to me is that the effect size of youth mentoring has remained small for almost 20 years. As long as we've been doing these meta-analyses, we're not improving outcomes. And that was really a wake-up call for me, was what's going on here? Why are we not getting these better outcomes? We did find some things that made the outcomes stronger, that they're called moderators. Yep. Um, and and one of the things that was, I think, one of the strongest signals in all the noise around um, these evaluations is that if the mentor is 
has had some experience in helping professions, whether it's nursing or counseling or guidance in some way, they make much better mentors. That is an effect that cuts across almost every study that's been done. So it really speaks to the need for some kind of experience or knowing how these relationships work. Um, and then we found a, a few other moderators. Um, we also recently did an update of this meta-analysis because of a hunch I had. And the hunch was that maybe when, when mentors really focus in on what young people need, you know, a lot of these programs don't. They're, they're taking this kind of global friendship approach. Um, and what if it's more targeted? And what we found is that you get a much stronger effect if the mentoring program targets particular outcomes and uses intervention strategies that have been developed specifically for those outcomes. Going back to uh, another moderator that I saw when I was looking at the paper, um, it looked as if some, actually, there may have been more than one here, but at least one or two of the moderators related to gender. So for example, the percentage of male mentors seem to be a moderator. Can, can you talk about the role that gender uh, played and why you think it played that role? Yeah, you know, that's kind of a curious finding. It was that male mentees and male mentors had stronger effects. And, you know, we, we kind of went back and forth on what that might mean. And um, one possibility is that there's different kind of routes to um, referral to these programs, that uh, a young man might be referred to a mentoring program simply because he lacks a male role model, mm -hmm. you know, because it's mostly single moms that are referring their young, uh, their children to these programs. Whereas why would a mother refer her daughter to get a second woman in her life? And that might have more to do with the fact that there's something more serious going on or that relationship is somehow problematic. Um, so that it may be that they come in at higher risk, young women versus young men because of the different referral process. Uh, another demographic variable that I could imagine would be relevant would also be race. That is, I could imagine that if there is a plausible hypothesis, hypothesis would be that when there is a, a match between the, race, the racial identity of the mentor and the racial identity of the protege, that the benefit would be greater than when there's a mismatch. But do you know if the data speak to that question? You know, that's a question that we've, we've had, uh, a lot of researchers have had, and it's difficult to answer, though, because it would imply that you'd have to randomize. Um, you know, you'd take people who were identical in every other way, except some you, you gave to a, a white mentor and some to a mentor of color, and you match them on that. Um, and you can't do that. So all you can do is look after, after the fact and see, is there any difference here? And we haven't really been able to find much difference in... Um, in race as a factor that, you know, moderates either the length of the relationship, the quality, or the outcome. There's other factors that seem to be more important. Uh, we do know, though, that risk, which is sometimes um, correlated with, you know, being more marginalized, which is also correlated with, with um, race, um, we find that risk is a factor that um, can shorten the relationship. Mm -hmm. That if kids approach the relationship and they're at really high risk for behavioral difficulties, psychological disturbances, all sorts of things like that, the relationships tend to be shorter and less effective. That's interesting. Um, I also remember seeing, I think in a different paper that you were writing about the, the, the demography of the typical volunteer mentor. So uh, this is actually yes. uh, in a paper uh, uh 
about uh, ethical principles along with Bell, uh, Liang, and Renee Spencer. And you, you wrote, and here I quote, the reality is that the largest proportion of volunteer mentors are white middle-class students and professionals, whereas youth protégés tend to be more economically and ethnically uh, diverse. And um, I, I get that there's a lot of uncertainty regarding the impact of race, but if I understood you, it sounds as if insofar as there is clarity, that that, that lack of, or that, that, disp- that sort of disproportionate lack of, uh, say, mentors of color may not constitute as much of um, um, a limit on the efficacy of mentoring as, uh, as one might think? Um, I think it really depends on what outcome you're looking for. If the program is really around social justice, around racial identity, then having similarity and racial background might be more important than if it's a more um, targeted outcome like mental health or, or academic um, performance. Um, so we don't really know. I mean, I think that this is a topic that needs to continue to be looked at, and we also need to continue to do all we can to recruit mentors of color, because I know that it must matter, but on, in ways that we're not measuring. Um, I recently did a study with, again, with Elizabeth Raposa and Nathan Dietz. Um, we looked at we, uh, census data, uh, because they had a supplement where it asked about mentoring, yep. and this was in 2017, and we, um, what it showed, we compared rates of mentoring more recently. And we're seeing that um, more um, mentors of color are volunteering, but it's still much lower. Yep. So it's, it's only around, oh, I would say 15% of mentors are mentors of color, whereas it's you know, more like 70% or higher for, for white mentors. And that surprises me because I, I would, it would seem to me that there would be, um, in many communities, a natural pipeline where those who had once been protégés would, uh, within a matter of years, be uh, interested in and, and possibly have the opportunity to come back and serve uh, uh, as mentors. Uh, do you have a sense of w- what the barriers are that interrupt that pipeline? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's useful to point out that, um, for example, African-Americans make up uh, maybe 12 to 15 percent of the American population. Yeah. And so in some ways it's mirroring that. Yeah. Um, but even so, why isn't there more given that there's more representation of mentees of color? It's, it's something like 60 to 70 percent of mentees are. And of that, the largest proportion are African-Americans. So I don't understand why we're not seeing more. Um, some of it, I think, might have to do with the fact that many mentors of color are doing it in more natural contexts through their yep. you know, places of worship, through community organizations, and not necessarily through programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters of America. So there's a lot of mentoring that's happening. It's just not codified as formal mentoring. So natural mentoring is far more common than formal mentoring. On average, a child has about a 4% chance of being in a formal mentoring program like Big Brothers Big Sisters. And if you ask them about natural mentors, you'll be surprised to learn it's like 75% of young people will say they had a natural mentor. Yeah. And we we just did this study very recently where we looked at this large data set. It's the Ad Health Adolescent Health um, Longitudinal Study. Um, you know, it's 60,000 kids, and, and it was about 70% said they had a natural mentor. 
Um, and But the interesting thing, when you look at that through the lens of social class and um, social capital, you see that there's differences in the type of mentors that people recruit um, or find in their lives, depending on their relative advantage and or marginalization. So more marginalized young people are more likely to say that a aunt, uncle, family member is their natural mentor, where more privileged young people are more likely to say their teacher, their guidance counselor, their employer. And you see that that makes a difference. Um, We've looked at these data longitudinally. And for example, young people who say their teacher was their natural mentor are more likely even 10 years later to be employed, to have gone further in school, even, you know, controlling for everything. So even though there's not a big gap in natural mentoring, you know, by sheer rate, you know, more marginalized kids are slightly less likely to say they have a natural mentor. The big gap comes in the social capital of those mentors. Uh-huh. And so I wonder if you uh, and your colleagues have thought about policy interventions that could potentially close that gap in social capital. Yeah, there's a, well, first let's talk about programs. And um, we have developed a program called youth initiated mentoring. And the idea behind that is that, Young, many young people have caring adults in their lives, in their schools, in their you know athletic leagues, where elsewhere, but they don't feel empowered, and they may not even have the sense of entitlement that they deserve to have a special relationship with these caring adults. And so, um, this was a program that was developed actually by the National Guard, um, and we've kind of modified it. But what we try to do is teach students how to recruit caring adults and going through the steps of, first of all, what is the value of having a mentor? How do you make that first connection? How do you maintain that relationship and so forth? And uh, we've had some really good success with, we call it Connected Scholars Program. Um, And we did a a controlled trial and found that young people who had just four sessions learning how to recruit mentors at the start of college had a higher grade point average at the end of the school year, they were yeah. also less, you know, they were more likely to recruit help. They were less avoidant. So it's, it's a small little sort of wise intervention that can make a big difference in young people's lives. Um, so that's, you know, a program implication. At a policy level, I think that it's very clear that there's a real disadvantage in schools, that the number of, the ratio, for example, of guidance counselors to students is much higher in, in less privileged schools. Yeah, yep. um, It's as high as 750 students to one guidance counselor. And we know from the research that having more guidance counselors, having more school nurses, you know, these adults who are often the front line for support in mental health care, in college access, all of that can really make a difference. And yet when we, you know, what we're seeing, and there was a new ACLU report, is that as those positions dry up, uh, young pe- there's more police presence at schools. And so we're kind of shifting the budgets from student support to, to um, you know, student discipline. Well, this, is, this conversation is really informative and helpful for me. And, and part of what it's changing for me is my uh, uh, understanding of what constitutes a good mentor uh, for me, if you'd asked me prior to this conversation, what constitutes a good mentor, I would have said, well, clearly caring is necessary and, and nothing you're saying implies otherwise. <laughs> Skill is necessary. Nothing you're saying implies otherwise. But also there are other things that I would have missed, such as social capital. So as much as, uh, say, a family member might care about me, if they don't have 
the social network that allows them to introduce me to people who can open doors for me. Whereas my peer, whose natural mentor is a teacher who might have uh, access uh, to others who can open doors, there's a gap there in social capital that care though she might, my family member might not be able to to overcome. But also when you think of when you describe the the number or the ratio of guidance counselors to students, time is another resource. Uh, as much as the guidance counselor might care, if that if if they are spread too thin, the the ability to actually uh, the ability to translate that care into impactful support is going to be limited. Am, am I thinking about all of that correctly? Absolutely. I mean, they have to have the resources. And what you see is teachers are just spread so thin. So they end up investing in only a few students. Um, you know, they, they kind of see, is there reciprocity in this relationship? Is there, is this kid going anywhere? And so um, they, they're spread so thin, they have to make those choices. Whereas kids in more affluent schools, they're surrounded by people with high social capital. And, you know, if their teacher can't provide it, someone else can. And, and so it's, it's a real way in which natural mentoring actually reproduces social inequality. We saw this in our data as well when um, in that ad health data set, we, we asked, is this mentor your role model? And more privileged kids said yes, and, and um, more marginalized kids did not said no. And even when you asked what kind of support is this mentor providing, if you look, because you know, it actually asks, what are they doing for you? Um, the mentors with higher social capital, it was around career advancement, it was around schools, and the mentors with lower so, uh, social capital, it was around you know, much more prosaic things like getting work done around the house and getting your finances in order and things like that. So we see these subtle ways in which mentoring really does divide um, and, and not always promote social justice. You mentioned the, that as guidance counselors and teachers get spread thinner, uh, often at least some of that breach in theory is filled by police presence and the, 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 the employment of police as uh, school resource officers has been controversial recently, including in uh, this, my state of residence, uh, Maine. Uh, I saw in a, a report out of Portland that one high school social studies teacher said that the uh, SRO uh, at her school not only makes her feel safer, but in her judgment serves as a mentor to the student. I wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, the prudence I'll phrase this in a couple of ways and you address it as you wish. I wish. I wonder if you have any thoughts on just the general prudence of uh, SROs in schools, but also in particular, uh, their potential efficacy as mentors. Yeah. I mean, given the choice between having a, a you know, a guidance counselor versus a gun carrying <laughs> Um, security <laughs> officer, I, I know I would choose the former. I mean, we know that those guidance counselors and nurses are vitally important. In fact, as we see with COVID as school closings, um, many people are being cut off from really the only mental health care and support that they were ever getting. Most children get their mental health care at schools. Now, um, you know, the security officers are, are not really trained in providing mental health care. We know from our meta-analyses, including a meta-analysis that I recently did of natural mentoring, that having some background working with youth is vitally important in um, providing good care to young people. However, you know, if that's your choice between not having that extra adult um, 
and no, or nothing, then maybe training those extra adults in providing mental health care, in providing you know listening skills and uh, the kind of support that the guidance counselors were providing. Just to play devil's advocate, I I could imagine someone uh, arguing that there's a kind of mentoring sort of in the model of the old scared straight uh, programs that an SRO could provide by given that officer's own experience and their colleagues experience uh, uh, dealing with uh, individuals uh, engaged in uh, criminal behavior with the attendant uh, uh, punitive consequences that, that that often come from that, that the SRO could be in a position to tell stories about how someone who did that thing you're doing uh, ended up uh, in jail. And so uh, what would you say to the argument that there's a kind of um, uh, scared straight or, or deterrent-based yeah. well, mentoring role they could play? Um, I mean, I think we have the data from D.A.R.E. Remember that program where they would have oh, yeah. cops show up at school and talk about drug drug abuse and try to scare kids straight? And it absolutely didn't work. I mean, part of it was that the, the money was diverted to, you know, police cars and things like that. Yeah. Um, but part of it was that the program itself didn't work. I think if we are going to have SRS, um, you know, what we need is bridging, not, you know, dividing. And, and so finding ways to to bridge the communities and, and have things de-escalate and have opportunities, um, you know, so moments where things could escalate becoming opportunities for learning and compassion, it could work. Well, shifting from D.A.R.E., another program that uh, is, is very well known is Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And unless I'm mistaken, your research has actually inspired change in their approach. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. So um, just, you know, at, at the, the biggest picture, we are shifting now from, you know, natural mentoring to formal mentoring programs, which, again, uh, are, are, I think, vitally important. But I think that one of the things we've done, and I write about this in a new book I have called Older and Wiser, yep. where the, the first half of the book, I really talk about how programs like Big Brothers, Big Sisters have been well-intentioned but in some ways, we've gotten caught up in the word mentor. By using the same word for both formal and natural mentors, we've conflated the two. And I think they're actually quite different. I think a formal mentoring relationship should actually be more often compared to a paraprofessional helping relationship, mm -hmm. like that school nurse or the social worker, where you're not trying to become a friend or a family member. You're trying to provide a service because we know that the vast majority of young people, and um, particularly marginalized young people in this country, don't get the services they need. So, you know, early signs of depression turn into, you know, full-blown depressive episodes and early anxiety and insomnia just escalate. If we can deploy that huge paraprofessional workforce, which is what's represented by Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and other mentoring programs, in the service of providing that kind of quasi-professional care, I think we'd be doing a lot better for our young people. So rather than try to become that aunt that the young person may or may not have, try to become a, a you know, a trained paraprofessional. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think uh, that that's a big argument I make in the book. And so what I did, um, you know, with regard to Big Brothers, Big Sisters is first in my book, I, I show pretty starkly that that approach, which has not changed, by the way, since uh, mentoring programs first came on the scene in the early 1900s of, you know, befriending a kid and hoping that just through that relationship, some magic happens 
and they, you know, their depression goes away or their grades get better. It doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it can. Um, I think it, you know, it, in rare cases, the relationship alone is enough to motivate all sorts of change. But for a lot of kids, it's an ephemeral re- relationship and it's a lost opportunity if they're not working on something. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to kind of, you know, compile the data that showed first that the effect sizes haven't changed in 20 years and they're particularly low for friendship. You know what I call non-specific. They're not targeting anything. It's just a friendship. Those kinds of relationships have the lowest effects. Um, and so then I was, you know, halfway through the, writing this book where I was kind of making the case for targeted care and paraprofessional care. I said, well, how is a program like Big Brothers Big Sisters ever going to be able to deliver targeted care? I mean, by definition, they're nonspecific. One kid is being referred because he's acting out in class. The next one because she's depressed. The next one, you know, there may be some social anxiety or friendship issues. The other one, there's low grades. How on earth can we expect? you know, volunteers who are uncompensated to, you know, f- provide evidence-based care for every single program, um, every single issue that comes in. And how can programs be expected to have, you know, a whole library of different evidence-based treatment programs? And so the reason that more specialized programs are effective is because they're really specialized and they train their volunteers to follow a protocol. That's yeah. impossible when every kid has a different issue. Yeah. And so I kind of wrote myself into a corner. I was like, oh, man, I don't know how to solve this. Yeah. So I came up with two different options. Um, and one of them, you know, is uh, both of them have, are already being used, but I think could be embraced more fully. So one of them is to say, you know, rather than just take your kid out to the ball game or whatever it is you want to do, why don't you go to that young, you know, that school or the um, court diversion program or the therapy office where the young person is getting care. And why don't you spend the rest of the week reinforcing whatever it is they're learning? Mm. Um, And so it's, I call it embedded mentoring. They can go into the systems of care. Um, They can go into the schools. And if the young person is is struggling with something, the the mentor is there to reinforce and practice whatever skills they're learning. So there's a great program in Boston uh, called partners in education where, you know, teachers call the program and they say, look, there's a young person who's falling behind in this class. The mentor goes in, sits through the class with the young person, and then during breakout sessions, reinforces what it is they're struggling with. Yeah. So embed themselves in the lives of young people rather than pulling them out. And, this, and, and one of the reasons to do this is young people are already getting the recreation that, that mentors are providing. You know, yeah. if, you, if you look at data... Many young people are already enrolled in sports programs and recreational programs and positive youth development programs. What they need is services. Yep. So the second thing, the second option, which actually Big Brothers Big Sisters loves and many programs, is to harness this growing movement, and you probably know about it as a psychologist, of technology-delivered interventions. Yep. That every day there are new evidence-based cognitive behavioral treatment programs coming online in the way of our apps. We have apps for everything that young people are struggling with. You know, you can think about, you know, Headspace for anxiety or Khan Academy if they're falling behind in a, in a particular subject, or a lot of new apps are for depression, anxiety, trauma, workforce development, whatever the young person needs, you can specialize because those interventions exist on their smartphone. And so um, the problem with all these interventions is that nobody uses them. 
the use rate after the initial installation is practically zero, you know, particularly for adolescents. So what mentors can do is provide what's called supportive accountability. And this is the idea that with a little bit of coaching and accountability, young people will return to these interventions. And, um, you know, there's a guy out at Northwestern who's really mastered the science of supportive accountability. And we've taken that and really tried to bring it to the world of mentoring. Is there and not so, a, is there not a, are, are there not risks associated with uh, untrained uh, that as mentors without uh, clinical training, uh, say if they have a protege who is battling depression, that the combination of an app and uh, an untrained mentor could do more harm than good? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a question for programs to know. I mean, programs need to know what their sweet spot is. It's not for young people with a full-blown clinical depression. For those young people, you might need something more. Um, but we do know that a lot of these apps work. It's not the mentor who's delivering the intervention. The app is delivering it. Um, you know, whether it's for depression and thought, challenging thoughts or um, learning how to, you know, meditate, those kinds of things are delivered with fidelity through the app. All the mentor is doing is reinforcing, yeah. reinforcing the use of it. And so, you know, I, obviously I do believe that this has to be supervised and, and programs have match support, you know, people who provide that kind of supervision. But I think that the you know, if you think about prevention on a continuum from promotion to, you know, institutionalization, somewhere along that line, the early stages from universal to, you know, more specific treatment programs, I think mentoring fits in. So another question that I have about the future or at least emerging developments in youth mentoring, uh, mentoring is, how you think the current COVID-19 pandemic is altering or might alter uh, youth mentoring? Yeah, I, I think um, two ways. For formal mentoring programs, it's forcing programs to really take advantage of technology because mm -hmm. I think there has been hesitancy. And so I think, you know, part of the reason that there's been a real receptiveness to this notion of blended mentoring and, you know, using things like Khan Academy and Headspace is because um, there's been a, a real difficulty in having face-to-face -face meetings. So part of it is, is um, it's shaping mentoring in that way. And I actually have developed an app that enables mentors to provide supportive accountability. And that's part of why um, I've seen so much excitement around that. Um, how does that, how, how does that app work? So what it is, is um, there's, you know, basically, a mentor needs to know whether or not the young person they're paired with is using the app. So the young person logs in and decides which challenge they want to work on mm -hmm. um, using, you know, a technique developed by this guy at Harvard, John White. They pick their top challenge. An algorithm says, okay, based on what you, how you've answered, you know, these questions, we think this is the app for you. They download it through our app, which is called Mentor Hub, and then... When they download it through that app, the mentor has the same information as the mentee, and the, the information from the app itself is transferred. The data are transferred through something called API. So every time they log on to Khan Academy or Headspace or IntelliCare or any of the apps we're partnering with, the mentor knows 
um, and, can, and can nudge the young person if they're not using it. So it's just a way, and we then train the mentor in support of accountability. So it's a way to track young people's use of, of really world-class apps. What about, um, what about informal or natural now, mentoring? Yeah, natural mentoring, I think, um, you know, what we're seeing is a real loss of, um, you know, the natural mentors in, in young people's everyday lives. I mean, not only are they not seeing their teachers who are often, you know, vital connections and the people at school, they, they're cut off from recreational things, from after school, from friendship, from friends, parents, from all of the caring adults that were in their lives, they're now you know, unable to really have these informal connections with. And we know the research is crystal clear that those relationships are vitally important. And so I, I do worry a lot for, you know, all kids, kids in formal and informal relationships about this loss of adult connection. You have a new book, uh, Older and Wiser. You mentioned it uh, briefly earlier. As we think about potential readers, if I'm someone who is going through uh, Barnes and Noble, or I guess these days I'm online at Amazon.com, what's the thing you most hope I am going to take away from that book, uh, either in terms of an idea, uh, a broad idea, or um, um, a way in which it's going to produce positive change in my life uh, that you would hope for? Well, as a reader, I would hope that you would read the book and see the value of really sharing your social capital with a young person. It's very easy to say there's nothing I can do, but we every child needs caring adults. And um, social capital is really valuable. You know, we often complain that, uh, taxes keep getting cut and we can't do much about it, but we we can share, maybe not our financial capital as easily anymore, we can share our social capital and look beyond just who's in your kin network to everyone. Because I think that there's mutual benefits to, to being helpful, whether you're doing it through a program or doing it through your place of worship, there is a benefit to reaching beyond your kinship network and helping somebody. Um, and I think one of the benefits, you know, the many benefits to children, but the benefits to adults, because one good relationship with a child outside your sphere, maybe somebody more marginalized, can open the world to you on what it's like to struggle, what it's like to be the subject of oppression and um, violence. And it makes it much more difficult to blame the victim when you are connected to somebody who is being victimized in some way. So I would hope that this book and really the world of mentoring provides a lens through which we can connect more fully with each other. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jane Rhodes for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on Rhodes or on the information that we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links, including a link to her new book, Older and Wiser, New Ideas for Youth Mentoring in the 21st Century. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can 
if you use Twitter, mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a review and or a rating, or to offer feedback privately, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. If you want to offer financial support to Tatter, go to Patreon and find the page for Tatter, and you can sign up to become a patron. And sometimes that will get you early access to episodes. But be aware, if you are a current student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support. So please don't sign up in that case. But for anyone else, come on in. The water's just fine. In any case... Thanks for listening. Be sure to wear your facial covering when physical distancing is not possible and possibly even then. And most importantly, be well. <laughs>